week's episode of The Mixtape, I had the pleasure of meeting with Dr. Ariel Pecos. Dr. Ariel Pecos is the Thomas Professor of Economics at Harvard. He's one of the co-authors on a famous paper in Empirical Industrial Organization known affectionately by others as just BLP, the initials of the three authors on the paper. Dr. Pecos and I discussed everything from his childhood moving into the present. We talked about growing up as a young man and being part of a socialist youth group um, studying in Israel, uh, falling in love with both philosophy and economics, as well as jazz and basketball, moving into Harvard, um, where he studied economics. And though he studied with John Rawls in his first year, he gradually had to let go of philosophy because he had to make some hard choices about what his career was going to be. I think you'll find it interesting to see how what maybe seemed like at the time, you might say a person that was distracted or maybe had too many things or couldn't focus. And in reality, it was just part of his production function, his tendency to have many interests and to tackle projects that seemed almost impossible was ultimately in the end part of what made him make really meaningful and important contributions uh, to areas like IO and econometrics. He's made many such topics. Uh, many such topics, topics his focus like patents, technology, and methods. But in the interview, it was his humility and his reflections on his life and his career, and both also the career, the career of economists. I really enjoyed. Um, I hope you like it too. I hope that hearing his story, you feel uh, a little encouraged enough to continue to realize that your story matters, that you're on your own journey. It uh, doesn't have to be his but his wasn't like anyone else's either. And at one point he was just also a young person or a young faculty member, just sort of uh, trying to strike out on his own. To quote Jack from Lost, uh, we either live together or we die alone. And I think if nothing else, li listening to each other's stories is a way of trying to live together or at least getting to know each other a little bit better as each person matters. And each person also makes up the collective fabric of the profession itself including you, the listener. So thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to like, share, and even possibly subscribe to the podcast. My name is Scott Cunningham. I'm your host of The Mixtape with Scott. This is my pleasure to have on the podcast today uh, a very uh, uh, well-known uh, economist, um, Dr. Ar Ariel Pecos. Uh, thank you so much for being on the, um, the podcast today. Thank you. Well, before we get started, uh, for the sake of the listeners, I already said your name, but if you could say it again, please introduce yourself um, with your name, um, your job title, and the firm who is paying your paycheck every week or every month. <laughs> My name is Ariel Pecos. I'm a Thomas Professor of Economics at Harvard University. Okay. Um, okay. Well, before we get started, uh, if I wanted to sort of do an icebreaker uh when you think about a vacation that you've had in your life, either from being a kid or, or later, that's kind of like burned a memory into your head. Uh, what, what is one of them that you really sort of always still think about from time to time? Uh, the Galapagos Islands. Oh, wow. When did you do that? <laughs> I did it. I don't know. Maybe it was 15 years ago with my kids. Oh and my, my wife. Uh, what was it like? Uh, it was just a great trip. There were it, there was a group of us. Everybody was sort of into nature and athletics. Nobody was, and we went around from island to island by boat. Oh. Mostly slept on the islands. Um, looked at nature. You know, there's a lot of uh, fauna and fish of various forms and oh, birds wow. of various forms. It's really quite amazing. How many weeks were you there for a week or more than that? I think we were there for about twelve days, actually. Ah. Oh. What a great idea. Was that your idea or was that one of your, somebody else? Uh, my, my son was uh, living in Ecuador at the time. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, we did, we do stuff like that. We've been to Patagonia, we've been oh. to Thailand, we've been to different places, but Galapagos was very special. Your family is very outdoors. Um, when we get together, yeah, we, that's what we do. Uh, yeah. You love the but, outdoors. Yeah. I mean, Yeah. I mean, we don't get together that often. You shouldn't get me wrong, but like, uh, you know, I we have an apartment also in New York. I like jazz. Yeah, I like the NBA. There's other things we like in the winter, but um, 
going to beautiful places and or interesting places is is a lot of fun. Oh, that's cool. Oh, it's that's that's a great. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna be thinking about the Galapagos Islands. There's not many. There's not many economics conferences at the Galapagos <laughs> Islands, so I've not yet gone. Uh, so I'm gonna have to probably go out of my way to go there. Um, okay, well let's get started. So so tell me about growing up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, oh, so uh, my parents were um, originally immigrants from in the 1930s. Jewish oh. immigrants. America's doors were closed. They came to Canada. Oh, um, I don't know what else to say. Uh, uh, my dad was, you know, work was one of these people who worked all the time and just wanted his kids to get an education. Yeah, we got an education. Um, you know, I could tell stories, but that that's essentially it. I mean, yeah. Um, What'd your mom do? She actually, um, she's a funny, she was a very intelligent woman uh, who at a very young age was forced to go to work because of the great depression and stuff like that. Oh, uh, wow. So when she came over, she skipped four or five years of school and did very well, but then had to work. I think she was always sorry. She never went back to university. So yeah, but she didn't. So yeah. And what did your dad do? He, um, when he came over, actually, he started trading furs with in the Northwest territories and then him and his brother founded a bedding company uh, for upholstery and beds, oh. which was reasonably successful. I mean, so. Oh, wow. What was Alberta like as a kid for you? Cold. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> um, it's Edmonton, right? It's probably the coldest city in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's a real city. Uh -huh. um, I, you know, I, um, you know, I, my father was ill much of the time that I remember, uh, and then, you know, went to high school in Edmonton and I joined a social, I did two things. I sort of, I joined a socialist youth movement. Oh, you did? Yeah. And I played basketball. I played all, my, almost all sports. So my time was divided between those two things. Yeah. I, I didn't know anybody else who did the same couple of things. So, yeah. you know, yeah, the, the, uh, yeah so. you're the first uh i thought it was a null set of uh socialist you know kids playing uh basketball in, <laughs> in high school now i now i know it's not uh, that's <laughs> what, true. what drew you to socialism how did that happen um it was sort of the most interesting so it was a socialist zionist group uh, -huh. uh it was times when I don't know. Uh, my my mom, not my dad, but my mom was very involved in sort of Zionism. The socialism part of it was just interesting philosophically yeah. for me. Um, so when I went, I did my BA in Jerusalem. <clears throat> yeah. And um, I had a double major. One was philosophy and one was economics. So oh. I took two majors. Did so you, get I, the, you got the philosophy major? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, so it always interested me, uh, from, I would, you know, from start, starting from social philosophy, but then I got, actually got interested in philosophy of science for a while, ah. uh, when I was in Jerusalem. Um, so, so you and your mom, your, your mom had these kinds of, is this right? Am I, am I right that your you and your mom would have these kinds of conversations about, uh, not really. Oh, not really? really? Yeah. Just the youth movement uh we you know it was pretty intense so, i don't know much about this youth movement what was that so it was we had a summer camp i went to twice for two months each uh it was outdoor you know you lived in tents and you discussed stuff lots yeah you learned a little bit about the outdoors but for the most part you discussed various things How? so you know we we read stuff were there a lot of famous Jewish socialist philosophers at that time? That is, it was it particularly like a connection of Zionism and socialism, or was it nothing? They're not really connected. No, there was. They, um, I think, historically, <clears throat> if you look at the beginnings of the labor movement in the United States, it's mostly Jewish immigrants from, or a lot, not mostly, but there were a lot of Jewish immigrants that uh, were part of that. Mm. It was a big the Europe. 
there was something called the Bund in Europe, which was Jewish socialism. Oh. Um, a lot there was a lot of that that came over at that time. Yeah, but I, you know, my parents weren't particularly socialist. It was just me. I mean, yeah. Uh, so um, they were. My mom was Zionist, but ah. not socialist. Yeah. So what do you? What about that? So what about what drew you to Hebrew University? I think. Um, you know, that's a good question. Uh, there's a, a few people like me in uh, that did things like this, which is, you know, I was bored. I, I was not happy in Edmonton, but I think I was just, I don't know, bored may be the wrong word, but I just wasn't happy. And just before, you know, in April or May or something like that, towards the end of the school year, <clears throat> um, yeah, there was this scholarship that opened up at the Hebrew University. And my mom said, I, if you want, you can apply. I applied and I got it. Oh, I was only supposed to go for a year. Really? <laughs> but I stayed. Yeah, but I, it was like a foreign student program. Oh, and I stayed for five years. So, what happened uh, that first year that made you want to stay? It was just, um, it's interesting for a kid who grew up, you know, pretty reasonably privileged and reasonably protected in you know north american society and then you go over to a country where at that time it was a much poorer country at that time and mm -hmm. they there were people from all over the world it was really an interesting place in those days yeah i mean there were all sorts of people coming through from you know even the kids from the states that i met um you know one was going to end up being a uh, reporter for the new york times one ended up uh, being the producer of Sesame Street, all, we had friends that were just all over the place. Wow! Uh, and they, it was really fun. And later, Israel became more religiously connected, and that. Oh, it was not then. This was the sixties, no. right? This was the late sixties. Yeah, I, I went to Israel just after the Six Day War, which oh. was in sixty-seven. So I went in sixty-eight. Huh? Did did Israel and Hebrew have the same kind of cultural revolution kind of thing that you associate with American universities? Like, was that temperament or the music scene or anything like that kind of a thing? No, I actually, no, not really. So I actually missed out on a, on a part of American society culture yeah. those five years. So I, uh, I've learned, you know, over time, I sort of picked up some of it, but I missed most of it. Yeah. But Israel was in a whole different spot. Um, um, in a way, in retrospect, an unfortunate spot, but uh, because they had just won the Six Day War, um, you know, it was uh, there was a lot of ego running around, and I think mm. they did the wrong things. Mm. But you know, it it for me, you know, I learned. Uh, I had friends who were French, uh, were friends from Morocco. I actually lived in the Arab section of Jerusalem for two years. Oh, uh, was that so common? It was just, uh, no, it wasn't. In those days, it wasn't. In the very first days that I came, there wasn't so much antagonism. Ah. Because, um, you know, the Arabs didn't want the Jews there, but, you know, they did, you know, they cleaned up the water and the old city and stuff. Kids never got dysentery anymore. So it was, there was fairly good. It wasn't great feelings, but they're fairly, I mean, for people like me, there was good feelings because I would come and speak English to their kids and play football with their kids and stuff. Yeah. But, but uh, wait, football, American gridiron football or soccer? Well, we tried to show them they were much better at soccer than me. So <laughs> I, I tried to show them American football. Yeah. But I mean, it we, was, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, it was, it was fun. It, and I look back on it fondly those years. So, uh, it was, I, there's a ton of stories I could tell you. you were you still following basketball? Were you, were you? No, I stopped following basketball until I got back to America. Now I follow it again. You follow I mean, it? There was about a five or six year period. Actually, I, after I spent five years, there, I spent a year traveling. But uh, at, when I got, finally got back to America, uh, I started following basketball and I, I'm a, I'm an addict. I waste too much time on basketball. Yeah. Is it the yeah. same team now? You said New York, so it's, I'm assuming it's the Knicks or something. It was the Knicks, and now it's the Celtics. Now that I'm back in Boston, so. Oh right, okay, yeah. What was it when you were a kid? <laughs> Who were you following when you were a kid? Uh, I wasn't really following the NBA when I was a kid. I was just playing. That was my favorite playing? sport. I followed football. I also 
I played all sorts of crazy sports at least. Yeah. I wasted a lot of time. Other than that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, so at Hebrew in the 60s, I, I interviewed Shoshana Grossbard and she went to Hebrew. And I want to say that she was, I can't remember if she said which university professors from America were there. I want to say she kept saying some Chicago people. But it, that that there it was a very heavy, it was a very good place for economics. Is that was that like what yeah. it was for you? Yeah, it was at the time I was there. It was really super. There were a lot of superstars there. Who all was well, there? Um, the the older guy who sort of set up the place was a guy named Dan Patinkin who wrote a monetary policy, a very important book on monetary policy. Um, there was a guy named Michael Bruno who taught me development and planning, and he became the he was um, he was the governor of the Bank of Israel for a while after that, and then he was also the head of the World Bank, vice president of the World Bank. Mm. Uh, he had, you know, I think over the years he probably had offers from all many of the major universities in the states. There's a guy named Yoram Ben Porat, yeah, who was a labor economist, famous labor economist, who did, I think he did the first model of education. Yeah, there's a guy named Menachem Ya'ari who was a theorist, who was a famous guy. They, it was really stacked. So, how did you end up in econ at Hebrew? You're, you're, because you do this master's in econ. So, I'm assuming that you sorted kind of sooner, is it relatively quickly? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think my professor in professors in philosophy also wanted me to do a doctor in philosophy. My attitude towards philosophy was, it was really interesting, but you know, many of the questions that I wanted answered hadn't been answered since, you know, time immemorial, and I wasn't going to answer them. <laughs> and so an economic scene, just more real world to me. <clears throat> yeah. So I did that. Um, I actually, I tried other things. I tried, I took a year off after um, my MA tried to be an author, decided I wasn't good at that. Um, did a bunch of little things. I tried to be, I was on a university, uh, mag, I was an editor or an associate editor at a university magazine. That was fun, but I knew I wasn't going to, you know, eventually I worked out I wasn't going to be a journalist. Right. So I stayed with economics. Well, so go ahead. Yeah. No, I wasn't sure when I got here to Harvard. That's yeah. why. I, while I was away, I got, I had to send applications to graduate schools and I got accepted to Harvard with scholarships and stuff. Yeah. Um, and when I came here, I wasn't sure really what I was going to do, whether it's going to try and be a journalist or being an economist. Or I spent my first half a year studying with a guy named John Rawls in the philosophy department. Oh, you did? Really? Yeah. Because the first year was, you, of the econ PhD program, you were, yeah. you were studying with Rawls? Yeah. But wow. I, I, uh, you, you shouldn't get me wrong. In the second half of the year, I had to uh, catch up to everybody else. It wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the dual graduate work at Harvard in uh, Rawlsian philosophy and micro sequence seems kind of intense. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> intense for a while. <laughs> well, uh, so you you get this experience of econ. But it's like, I guess it it doesn't really fully grab you even at Hebrew because you're sort of, you sound like you're on the fence a little bit because you sort of travel around yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I think what happened with me is, uh, you know, when I, when I finally decided that I was going to be full, full head economics, I wanted to do the economics of technological change, mm -hmm. uh, which ended up being the hardest topic in the world to do <laughs> as far as I could tell. <laughs> so you know i took steps back from that and tried to figure out what you would need to do in order to study it yeah and that's how i got into industrial organizations yeah so, yeah uh, when was so. that is that the first year or that was like a little bit a little bit no, later it was later uh my thesis was really it's supposed to be in technological change and it wasn't technological change you didn't get me wrong uh but you know, it, there was no framework that I liked that I thought was good. Hmm. So I took a step back. I think a little bit, my philosophy background sort of told me just take a step back and look for a framework, you know, a model to analyze it, 
could use the data together with um, the model. I did spend quite a bit of time in my last few years studying econometrics. Yeah. I didn't, when I came in, I didn't have any math. Uh, I never took any math courses formally. Yeah. I did read math books, but I never took math courses. Oh, even at Hebrew? You did, they didn't, yeah, I didn't they didn't any. push you on that? Um, no, because I did okay the way I did it. I just, I studied by myself a little bit. And then I wrote a paper when I was a graduate student, last year of my graduate school, I wrote a paper with a guy named Rick Erickson, who was an assistant professor here, just starting assistant professor. And I was finishing graduate school. Mm -hmm. And he convinced me that I should read this math textbook, Royden, and do every second problem. So I did <laughs> every, that. Every second problem? <laughs> yeah, because it was too it had taken forever to um. not do everything. <laughs> so I did that. And you know, that's when I sort of started becoming more a little more technical. Yeah. Um, he was a stochastic process guy. He was very good at math. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, so what so what was the puzzle? There, I guess there was some puzzle with technological change that you felt like you felt really dissatisfied with something. Yeah. What was the deal? Well, I mean, you needed to know um, what was generating the incentives. So you needed a demand system. Mm. Uh, you needed a cost function or a production function. You needed to know how people made investment decisions. None of that was in the literature at the time. I mean, it was in the literature, you shouldn't get me wrong, but it wasn't in the empirical or applied oh, literature. Got it, got it. So the goal was to sort of put that together into, um, yeah, into a framework that could be usable. You were saying that, that was it ambitious of your, of your professor? Did they think it was pretty ambitious what you were gonna to try to do? So, in that context, I remember Janet Yellen was here. She was teaching us macro at the time, or maybe it was public. I think it was macro. And I remember telling her this and she said, she, she asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I wanted to make some empirical work with theory. And she said, that was the hardest thing to do. I remember her saying that, hmm. but uh, I think, you know, I wrote my thesis with, uh, my advisor was a guy named Svi Grolkes, who you probably have heard of. Yes. And Gary Chamberlain, who was the econometrician on board. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, Svi was, Gary was a super solid, thoughtful guy. Mm. And Svi was really just a very good social scientist. So he let me do what I wanted to do, mm. provided it was done in a serious way. So. Mm. I don't think he was, he wasn't particularly happy with the theory part of what I was doing. Really? Because he was more of an empirical guy. Yeah. But I think he bought in eventually. Oh, um, so you've got like an applied guy and a, and a pure econometrician guy. Right. And so, and you're bringing all this micro theory to it, all this IO theory. I'm trying to, yeah. Trying to. <laughs> that's, that's the attempt. Yeah. Was there um, nobody at Harvard at the time that would have been like a more logical fit? Or was that like just where the literature was that it was just like. I think that's where the literature was. The yeah. only people really doing applied work. You know, was serious sort of thought to econometrics were the were the labor group, maybe a little bit of public finance. Mm. But there was no the, the IO stuff was mostly. You know, it was the years of. Um, structure conduct performance. I don't know if you know though. Oh, it yeah, was still right, dominant. Right. Was still dominant at that time. Yeah, I forgot about uh, that. And people who just did correlations. Mm. And mm. that was it. Hmm. So, so I, was that like a so when you write that dissertation, did it just feel what did it feel like to the journey of it? Um you know, I I remember. I really enjoyed my last couple of years at Harvard. I didn't enjoy my first couple of years. It got right. to be, it was too hard. I mean, I tried to do too many things. My father passed away in my first year here. Mm. It was just a rough couple of years. Mm. But the last couple of years at Harvard, I really enjoyed. It was just a blast. Mm. Um, I worked with different different students mostly. Hmm. Um, I mean, I remember talking to somebody at Harvard who said, you know, um, the one thing that Harvard's good at is if you have a good idea, they pay attention to you. Uh, and I think that's true. I think it's still true, by the way. Uh, uh -huh. 
you know, so I didn't really connect with anybody before I started writing stuff. And then people would, people wanted, you know, I, it, if you had a good idea or something serious, people here will talk to you. I mean, there's no question. Uh-huh. Uh, they, they're busy people, but if, but they'll pay attention to a good so idea. So that was Dr. Chamberlain and Dr. Dr. Grillich? Yeah. And others also, I mean, Mike Spence was here. And, oh, uh, so there was, you know, and he was a theory guy. So he actually, I remember him saying after I gave um, my thesis talk that he never understood a word, but maybe we should talk. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, it was sort of like that. It was fine. It, it did, was really fun. Also, the students I was working with were good. So, just out of curiosity, did you ever meet David Lewis, the philosopher? No, I don't think I did. I have. Oh, okay. He he. Uh, uh, I think was all in those circles with you over studying Schelling. He uh, would go to the Schelling seminars, apparently in, I think he's got some signaling piece in one of his books and, uh, and um, it's filled with Schelling sites. I was just curious. Okay. So yeah, Schelling, Schelling, by the way, was a very creative guy. I mean, from, from the, if you think of the time he was writing, yeah. he was just, he was just doing, he was alone. You know? uh -huh. I mean, uh, so I didn't really know about him until later. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so you weren't like sorting into all these like game theorists that were like beginning to emerge. You, you were, you, you were kind of like IO econometrics, but you could like, you, you clearly had this like ability to kind of interact with this, this theory too, but you didn't, you weren't going over. There I, I, I didn't do that. The game theory that happened at the time, there yeah. was, yeah, I should take a step back there. So there were two things that went on in game theory at the time. <clears throat> One was just frameworks of conceptual ideas for equilibrium notions. Uh, wow. Okay. So, you know, it was based on some form of Nash equilibrium, usually Markov perfect or Nash, Markov perfect Nash, pricing Nash, something Nash yeah. or Nash bargaining. Um, <clears throat> So there was that, and that that did impact me. I mean, when I wrote with Rick Erickson, you know, we were doing that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the the theorists were doing it in a way of just showing that there was this notion of equilibrium that made sense. So for them, an equilibrium was just everybody's doing the best they can, so nobody has an incentive to deviate. That's it. I mean. Yeah. And you could say that in 15 different ways with 15 different <laughs> conditions on it and stuff right. like that. Right. Uh, but then the applied theorists took over and, um, you know, much of it was sort of demonstrating, you know, what could happen in a game theoretic context. So when firms were interacting, what could happen? Okay. And it's sort of, this is what, this is when I started getting involved a little bit. You know, what could happen depended on functional forms, timing assumptions, whole bunch of different things. Yeah. And, you know, I thought our role as empiricists was to figure out the right assumptions for different industries, for different situations where we want to make policy. Mm. So that's sort of where we came in. When they, you know, I, I think I got a little bit bored of reading one article after another, which got different answers for the same problem because mm. of different assumptions. Right. Not that they were useful in the sense that they taught you sort of what could happen and what to look for in the data that would, you know, structure a model in a, in a way that would rationalize it. Right. But um, there was sort of no definitive thing on any industry. Yeah. Which, uh, which got us going, uh, which got me and my friends going, I guess, me and my students and friends going. Huh. Uh, so, you know, so if you look what happened afterwards to the empirical side of it, yeah, it's mostly industry studies by single industries, you know, oh. and, and policy for those single industries. Oh, so that's still what I do, you know. I mean, still today, though I got to admit, I'm getting, yeah, I, I go back and forth between methodology and empirical work, but yeah, uh, the empirical work is, you know, once in a uh, except for maybe one or two things I've done, the empirical work is all focused on particular industries, mm. you know, it has methodology in it but it's focused on particular industries. Yeah. But your early work, I see a lot 
about patents. Is that the same yeah. thing as what you're describing? If it being that's the, that's the that's the end of my period of technological change. Oh. Uh, um, but even that works. So the, I got the Fish Award for patents as options in 1986, I think. Uh -huh. um, and that medal, I. Uh, you know, I think partly it was for for doing an empirical study, but partly it was for I and two others in different play, different fields did the first dynamic models of agents' behavior that were mm. estimated. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it was partly just methodology. And it, indeed, in that paper, you know, there was a lot of new things, uh, you know, for me, I was just trying to solve a problem, but in order to solve the problem, I needed these new things. So there was, I think maybe the first simulation estimator and actual estimation, oh. Dan McFadden had been using it um, to figure out whether rapid transit would work in Berkeley, right? And uh, but not in an actual estimation algorithm. Oh. It was maybe the first paper, certainly the first paper who solved a dynamic program and then <clears throat> And then integrate it out over people so you could only get aggregates. Because I only saw the fraction dropping out in every period and stuff like that. So there was a lot of methodology in it, which is, I think, part of the reason it won the Fish Award. Huh. It has a, it, uh, it was my first big paper. Did it did you have a sense that it was going to be a Mount Everest kind of climb? Big paper that yeah, you would have I, to like do a bunch of creative stuff. Um yeah, as I went on, I figured out that I needed to do a bunch of stuff. I mean, <laughs> they, I mean, I didn't. It was the same with almost everything I've done, which is I start on a problem because I think it's an important problem, and then I run into problems, and I often end up asking friends how to figure it out. You know, uh -huh. like somebody who's better than me at economics. In this case, by the way, um, the year that I was writing patents options. I had come back here to visit Harvard. Sea Grokis had invited me back for half a year. Uh -huh. I didn't have to do anything except for research. Um, but Dan McFadden and Chuck Mansky and the MIT crowd were holding this seminar, which was um, anything that, any problem you have that we don't know how to answer, uh, you can come and give a paper. So I gave a paper. I got a lot of ideas. I mean, it was very helpful. I, <laughs> I mean, they didn't solve it, but you know, Dan, I think it was Dan, either Dan or Chuck mentioned, you know, you should try looking at simulation estimators and stuff like that. So th there was a lot going on here at that time. Huh. Uh, you said and, McFadden was doing that, but he was not doing it. Did, did I hear? I mean, you? as, as far as I, there's a, he's, Dan's one of my heroes. Okay. So you should, you shouldn't get me wrong. He, uh, the the BART project. If you look back at the report on the BART project, I don't think it was. I might not have ever been published. I have a copy somewhere. Ah. I, the way they evaluated what would happen is they did simulations of you know people, and then they post facto they looked to see if they were right or not, and they did very well. Mm. But I, so that's the one thing about simulations that I knew about before I started my paper. Yeah. Okay. Now there may be more out there that I just don't know about. You shouldn't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so he he suggests this to you. Either he or Chuck. I remember them both being there. Jerry Hausman was also there making suggestions. There was a lot of them sitting around. Uh, these were the greats of those days. Yeah. And uh, Gary was probably there too. Chamberlain. I can't remember that, but I do remember the three of those guys, uh, and it lasted. Instead of lasting an hour, I think it lasted two and a half hours. Everybody just stuck around trying to figure out the answers. So you, you what? So what's the puzzle that you present to them? What What is it that you were like? Nothing else works right now. And so, what was it exactly? So there was a computational puzzle of how to solve a dynamic program, and then for different people, and then integrate out and get estimators of the parameters that were heterogeneous across the population. Oh, right, 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 right. So. Right. I mean, it, that sounds technical, but it, it was. Well, why yeah. were you even asking that in the first place? Why were you asking it and like it hadn't been asked before? So I wrote a paper with, as a graduate student with a guy named Mark Shankerman, who is now at the London School of Economics, on the rate of obsolescence of knowledge. So people, 
had been constructing knowledge stocks with uh you know with the normal depreciation rates of capital which are usually you know two or three percent for structures and five to ten percent for equipment depending on the equipment yeah and you know we thought that we found some old data in a paper by Nordhaus and uh-huh. and uh, about patents dropping out, you know, not paying the renewal fees. Oh, they start. And uh, so that's what patents is options. My paper was all about. Okay. You know, can you, what can you tell from people not paying their renewal fees? What was the value of the patent? Oh, so um, yeah. So Mark and I uh, looked at this uh, and wrote this little paper that said, you know, you guys got it all wrong. This is not about the depreciation of physical things. It's about the depreciation of knowledge, how knowledge gets obsoleted. And that mm-hmm. rate is much different from the rate of capital depreciation. Can you give me an example of what that means? Like, uh, like, give me an example with a patent of, of that kind of thing happening. You have a, I don't know, let's take pharmaceutical. You have a pharmaceutical that does X and uh, another, and, you know, it's very productive. It doesn't really ever decay physically. Right. You can, Okay. But something comes, another pharmaceutical comes along, which is, has less side effects yeah, yeah, and yeah. is cheaper. Right. And then it goes away, but yeah, not yeah, because yeah. of physical decay, just because of the next time something comes along that obsoletes it. Oh, that's really interesting. Cause it's an idea. It can't really disappear. Right. Yeah. Is that a social, how does that enter into the welfare function? You losing, so, do you lose so, it? Uh, oh. No, I mean there. Uh, it is it built. It's knowledge which builds on the knowledge, right? Okay? So, uh, so there's externalities involved uh, always, because you know the second guy who does a who does the second thing knew about the first thing, right? Uh, so all of the knowledge producing stuff has uh, externalities involved with it, which is the problem with it. So patents themselves are an institutionally created property right. Yeah. There's no real, okay. They, they're created to give people incentive to discover things mm-hmm. and again, give them, you know, that if they didn't have patents, they wouldn't get any return from it or get a very small return from it. Mm-hmm. Just, okay, because somebody else could copy the thing. Yeah, yeah. And so that's it. I got to, let me just, uh, I got to, I guess I got to uh, put some, Put my power cord on or my okay. computer's going to die. Okay, I'm going to pause it real quick. Okay. Well, it's funny. The way you're describing it, you could think about that crowding out of knowledge or bumping it off, and it you don't really necessarily have to bring in markets. And even though you said it's a property right that provides incentives for people to engage in research and development, but I could imagine under different market regimes, you know, that it has, that it doesn't necessarily always have, that it could, that it, that it isn't maybe always unambiguously positive. And I'm just curious now, how do I need to think about that process of like knocking something out? So there's, um, yeah, there's two, uh, there's two parts of this. So part the stuff that is, you know, the national uh, research labs and the universities that are funded in the hospitals, also some of the research in hospitals are funded largely through the government because um, they, you know, they, there is very little incentive for a private company to do that, to do the basic research that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they did discover something it, you know, they, there are two aspects of it. One, if they did discover something, somebody could copy it. But the other thing is, we don't want them to keep it proprietary, the basic research. We want everybody to know about it. So um, that's the reason for things like the National Institute of Health, um, all the national research labs. Um, the thing that's true is, at least in health, which I've looked at, um, the U.S. is doing much more than any other country per capita. Mm-hmm. Or and also per GDP, uh, it's striking the difference. Hmm. So uh, that there's that stuff that's funded by government, and then there's private firms 
and you can't expect a private firm uh, to do something without a return. I mean, that's yeah, it's it's a fiduciary responsibility of a manager to do that, right? Um, so, and those are all markets, you know. It's uh, so, you know, uh, the one I've been thinking about lately is pharmaceuticals, but uh, so those are all markets with firms competing against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you need the the IO is determining the incentives and how they interact with each other. Mm. The industrial organization of that. Mm. That's a very, um, that's sort of at the limit of what we can do right now in industrial organization. Oh, that's fascinating. So, <laughs> so um, I, I do want to keep talking about that, but I, but then I won't get to other things. So um, yeah, it, okay, go. funny as I hear you say that I wouldn't have anticipated you pivoting into automobiles and specific prices or specific markets like that. But is there a logical kind of path from what you were working on? I mean, cause you do mention McFadden and then there's so much of this paper I want to talk about, I can see the connection, but was that a bit of a smooth transition or was it sort of different? So I think what happened with, uh, the auto stuff <clears throat> was Jim Levinson showed up at, at Yale one day and gave this seminar. I remember his wife was giving birth, so he had to go back right away. So um, we went out for pizza and he gave this, he was working on a paper with Feenstra on autos. Jim knows a ton about autos, mm. uh, or at least at the time, he was really very well-versed. Mm. And Steve, Barry and I, and Jim went out for pizza quickly. So we get Jim and I think, I think I sketched, or maybe Steve and I sketched out on a napkin how you would do BLT, how you would do this right. And I remember telling Jim, if you come back in the summer, uh, we'll do it. And Jim always reminded me that it took three years to do <laughs> it. It was, it was three <laughs> we did summers. did do it, but it took three years to do it. Yeah. Uh, Wait, so that's funny. So he presents this paper, which which somehow is incomplete. What is What is he talking about? No, he was he was talking about the relationship. I'm trying to remember now between characteristics and prices and competitors' characteristics and prices. It it appeared, I think, in the Review of Economic Studies. I don't remember exactly the details. Mm. Um, but the thing about autos that sort of it was, first of all, Jim was fun, and he uh-huh. had the data and he knew stuff. But the other, I tend again when I work on a applied project, I try to work with somebody who knows the industry. So, um, so he did, uh, but the other thing was something that C. Grillke's always taught me is you should work on something that people care about. And the auto industry at the time was probably the biggest manufacturing industry in the United States. Oh yeah. It is not anymore. Right. So people cared about the, I remember, you know, there's this famous quote that as GM goes, so goes the American economy or some crazy thing like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, when we said we knew how to do demand for autos, people paid attention. Oh, uh, so, uh, so did you care about automobiles or was it just like you learned to care? Yeah, yeah, I learned to you learn to care. You study, you study, you read books about it. You talk to people in the industry. Similarly, I did telecommunication equipment once with a paper with Steve Ollie, which took a long time. Uh-huh. And uh you know, it's my most cited paper, but I learned a lot about telecommunication. Yeah. And now I'm learning a lot about pharmaceuticals. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you you try and work with somebody who knows what they're, knows the end. So again, if you go back to what we're trying to do, we're trying to figure out how to analyze an industry. There's tons of models around, but we want to pick the aspect, the, mo- the aspects for the model there that mimic the industry so right. that we can do counterfactuals and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. what was dissatisfying at that exact moment where you where it's another one of these big problems that like, you know, like you're not satisfied with the framework? What what was the situation like that at the time? There there were two sort of things that were wrong. I mean, I don't know exactly what I thought of at the time. Let me just be careful. Okay, I know what now what I think about it, which is yeah. there were two problems. One was um and I think, by the way, both Steve and Jim were aware of this too. Not it's not just me. I, uh, the the you know most products, most markets for differentiated products like autos or almost anything else, you know, there's fifty or to a hundred 
products being marketed. So if you did a standard demand system with quantity on one side and prices on the other side, you'd have 100 prices for each product. And you have 100 products, that's 10,000 parameters, even if it's just linear. Right. That's impossible Yeah. for anybody. I mean, there's no data set that can do that with any precision. Right. So when we filtered it down into characteristic space, all I needed was a distribution of preferences over the important characteristics. Oh. So, and I, then I could get you all 10,000 cross-price elasticities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or not, I could get you. When I say I, it's probably wrong. It's unfair. The um, All the characteristics. So you wanted, you needed to know how to put in an just like in a demand system, you have X's and then an unobservable. We needed to put in an unobservable to take care of the characteristics that we were not including. Yeah. And so we needed to learn how to do that. So, did, did did you present any of this early on to Dr. McFadden? Uh, Dan, no, I don't, I don't think, I think I, Dan moved to Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> at some point. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw him in a couple of summers and we talked when I did. So eventually, by the way, uh, I went back to, to um, I had a Yale offer when I was just on the market. I never went on the market as a junior guy because I had this Hebrew University offer and a Yale offer before I ever went on the market. Oh. Uh, and uh, uh, I never took the Yale offer. I went to Hebrew University and then came back. And when I came back, it was just too hard for us in Israel. We weren't making a lot of money. My wife was from Bogota, not from Israel. We had no family there to help us once we had a kid and stuff. Um, so I came back and when I came back, Yale said, well, why don't you come here for a half year? You don't have to do anything. Uh, just sit in the growth center and talk to the people who are doing development. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I took this course from this guy and I wanted to figure out how much math I knew because I had been reading this math, but I never took a course. Right. So I went to a course by a guy named David Pollard, uh, in the stat department. Actually, he's, he had a joint appointment in math and statistics uh -huh. on measure theory. So uh, I learned a little bit about measure theory. And then about three quarters away the course, I went up to David and I said, you know, I have this problem uh, that nobody, none of my friends know how to solve. And because uh, I had asked a bunch of people and uh, it was how to do simulation estimators. So David said to me, I'll explain it to you and you explain it to your to economists. At, and then um, I was in Cambridge giving another seminar and I met, bumped into Dan was in Cambridge at the time uh -huh. and he said he'd just written the same page it was just the same idea only he did it for multinomial probits and I was doing it David and I were doing it more generally but it didn't I mean it was exactly the same problem oh so Dan organized this afternoon with four papers on this so David and I came in and Dan, then we had dinner at Dan's house half Dan was great like that he was always uh -huh. like that um but you you can see you can see what goes on you know you something happens you realize you can all of a sudden do things that nobody could do yeah that might be important and everybody gets excited and starts working together it's just a lot of fun yeah yeah yeah, yeah, know, yeah. I, so i mean we worked really hard on the simulation stuff i mean for me to keep up with david was because I didn't have the math background. David taught me things point wise. You know, he would go to the backboard and show me exactly why it works. And then I'd <laughs> go home and study it. And he'd yeah. show me something else. It was yeah. great. It was a I lot once, of fun. I once heard this uh, journalist interview uh, Dizzy Gillespie, but you'll, you've maybe heard this story or maybe you'll appreciate it. And he said, um, uh, you know, well, why did you set out to invent Bebop? And he said, uh, well, I didn't set out to invent anything. I just was making music. That's sort of the way I felt. I got it. By the way, I'm a big jazz fan. So yeah. Dizzy Gillespie uh, strikes, a, strikes a, you know, a thing in my heart. Yeah. Uh, uh, not as much as Dave Rubeck, but a lot. <laughs> uh, so that's how yeah. it's been. You've not really been trying to do anything except yeah. for what? Except for just what's the equivalent of you of just making music? It's just finding a problem that I think is important to understanding economics. Usually it's a methodological problem mm. in a setting that has a, you know, some, like right now I'm working on dynamics, advertising for uh, pharmaceuticals mm. and whether that's good or bad or what happens if we 
stopped it. You might not know this, but we're the only developed country that allow, other than New Zealand, we're the only other developed country that allows advertising for direct to consumer, direct to consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. It's illegal in Europe. <clears throat> Why? What's the what is the what's the problem that there's? The I guess argument. Yeah, it's a so you know the, there's two parts of it really. Uh, one part of it is um, you know they have the incentive they have incentives to sell you something you might not need, uh, and the other part of it is. Uh, of that part, I can give you the other argument also. But the other part of it is it's largely um, business stealing. You know, mm. that the, there are 14 drugs that do the same thing. And by allowing, you know, this is just a waste of energy. They have to go to their doctor anyway to get it. The right. doctor will know these things. We're going to allow, we allow advertising direct to doctors, just not direct to consumers. So why should we allow direct to consumer advertising? What do you think? The, I mean, well, the other, right, what's the other argument? I'll ask you. What yeah, you the other side of the argument, I'm trying to figure out what I think right now. <laughs> but uh, the other side of the argument is uh, by the drug companies is largely, I'll give you a particular example, um, which is drugs for heartburn, uh, uh -huh. like Zantac, Pepsid, Axid, those drugs. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I think what the drug companies would say is, you know, maybe, you know, who gets heartburn? Who gets heartburn are people who eat very rich foods, okay? Uh, they're usually poor people who don't go to see doctors, mm. okay? And if they don't, they will see it on TV. If you tell them on TV, you have heartburn and you can go see a doctor, mm -hmm. um, uh, they might go, but they'll never, you know, if they, you know, they just have heartburn, it's a normal course of events in certain societies. Mm -hmm. And they'll just let, and heartburn can turn into very serious diseases if mm. it's not treated properly. Oh, I didn't know that. So, so, um, you know, sometimes it can turn into ulcers and things like that. Hmm. Um, ulcers is a good example, by the way, because it's something that in my parents' generation, hmm. you probably don't remember this, but lots of people got ulcers and it's very serious. Hmm. Um, I don't think anybody gets ulcers. I haven't heard anybody getting ulcers anymore. I haven't either. Yeah, it seems more like uh, a person says they got an ulcer, and but they don't actually, I've never heard somebody actually diagnosed with one it's usually just kind of a almost like a self-diagnosis thing that i've never heard actually turn into one yeah so they they now can fix it i mean oh. when, when earlier on they now have drugs that fix it and stuff like huh. that and if huh. you knew about it you could go to your doctor and get it get so when drug. you study this stuff um how so the everything you're kind of bringing up is like really specific it's like heartburn or automobiles or things like that i mean is that how it typically is working that you're like you you are specifically very interested in i mean is it you're like specifically interested in a very specific drug or whatever or is it like you're kind of more you because you said methodology so how is it how is it fitting so, together so um you know it's usually the the little stories to get you interested. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, like the advertising for pharmaceuticals, I got interested. I Well, I was always interested in pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals is a huge industry and it's very important. And there's yeah. tons of regulation around yeah. it that you might want to, you know, mitigate or change slightly. But um, it also... Uh, brings up the question of dynamics because if I advertise today, it causes demand today and demand tomorrow and so on. And there's, and if I advertise for my drug, I might take away from the other guy's drug. So there's all of that. Mm -hmm. That's the part of industrial organization that's least developed now. Um, and I, I think I know why, and I've written a couple of theory papers on why. So um, actually with a guy named Chaim Fershman from Tel Aviv, we've written papers called experience-based equilibrium papers. Hmm. And I thought this was a good example to try and then try the new stuff on. I cared hmm. about it and I could trans and I, and I wanted to learn how to transfer the theory into empirical work, into an empirical methodology. Yeah. And uh, I think we're almost there. So, huh. uh, uh, so even within like health and medicine, you're finding, is it, is it true? Like, 
each of these particular compounds are sufficiently different from a market perspective that you you have enough to kind of like do all this novel thing i would have so always what, thought like you do one and then that's it no we do we're actually so we we're we're following industries uh markets over time okay we're mm -hmm. actually following four of the highest i'm working with a guy from Paris, from toulouse in france named mm -hmm. pierre dubois mm -hmm. um we're following investment demand and advertising expenditures um, in four drug markets, mm. anti-ulcer, anti-rheumatism, um, anti-ulcer, anti-asthma, and anti-cholesterol. Mm. So, and each one has different parameters. You know, we estimate different parameters. It's a similar model, but you know, the, the demand systems are different and the reactions to the advertising are different in the different markets. And so, can I see that like this is like the grandson of BLP? Can in you a way, see the so signature on it? BLP is the demand system we use. Yeah. And then the advertising, what the advertising does is it increases the quality of the product in the demand system. Oh, that wasn't there. Yeah. yeah. So that's the more newer part. Or yeah, that's, and then, that's the, then the, the unique part. Or one of and them. We never, we never did any investment. So oh, oh, that's really the newer part. Oh, but it does, it does use the BLP demand system, and then it, it uses everything. It uses the experience-based equilibrium framework. Yeah, it's a framework where the a lot of the problem with doing dynamics. This is probably more, more than you want to know. But so you no, should I'm... stop me. A lot of the problem with doing dynamics is that if you write down the basic models that theory gave us, yeah. They're just too complicated. They're too complicated for firms to solve. And they're too complicated to compute on the computer too. Mm -hmm. So this experience-based equilibria is a way of getting around that mm. that we're developing to make it easier to use. And also to probably hopefully reflect more of what firms actually do, seeing they can't do the perfect thing. Yeah, yeah. I was curious... I, I, I want to stay on this topic, but I didn't get to ask this. So I just got to return to it real quick. I, how surprised were you that BLP was so influ has become so influential? Was there like a part in your career where you thought, huh, this is, this one seems to be catching on like wildfire or was it, is it not? I mean, I don't really know how it progressed, but was there a part where you thought this really has been very impactful? So, uh, BLP is not my most cited paper. I saw that. Yeah, it's this, it's another one. It's the one on how to estimate production functions. Right, right. Uh, which was the other year. So there was cost and demand. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, let me, let me put it differently. BLP probably took off faster than any of my other papers. Mm. Um, but I think all the papers that I thought were really solid ended up taking off. So... I thought that the Ollie Pekas paper, I thought the patents as options paper was really good. Mm. I, really good for me. It was, they were my best papers. You know, the paper with Rick Erickson were my best papers. It was clear. They took me years to write. And I, and I, you know, my heart and soul was in them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, but BLP took off faster than anything else. And it, the reason was pretty simple, which is um, they needed it for merger review and things like that. Oh. So the consultants picked it up right away. Oh, oh! Did that surprise you, or did you did you guys kind of know? Yeah, that no, that surprised me. Now, now, now I know more about consulting. But then I think it surprised. I did. I it's not a surprise. I just didn't think about it. That's right. not what we were thinking of doing. You know, we yeah. weren't trying to present them with a tool. Well, we're did you notice? Did you notice at some point you're like, oh, the there's some consultants here from McKinsey or whatever. I mean, it's like, did you kind of notice like? You can't help but notice they come to you. They come to you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah right, right. They like take you out for pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, if they're going to use it in a court case and they have Steve Barry or Ariel Pecos on the, or Jim Levinson for that matter, on the court, on the case, yeah. it looks like, you know, they're serious about it. Right, 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 right. Wow. 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 That's really inspiring. I don't think. That's really neat. Um, uh, just to see that your passion and heart is has always kind of pushed you through all of this. I mean, uh, you you 
you've you've led with your heart it seems like is that right you're you're i love it with my instincts let me put it that way uh, okay yeah uh that's what by the way that's what you know my thesis about c girl accused was really good at that uh-huh. he understood when something was a real problem mm. uh so i picked up from different people you can see i picked up from different people as i went along yeah um, yeah so well, so if you could go back in time and talk to uh, yourself, you know, as your younger self and, you know, like tell them kind of like now you're, you know, you've seen a lot. Um, what do you think you would tell your younger self, maybe like either college, graduate school, or even like whenever, what, what do you think that you would tell them that, that maybe would be useful for them to know? You know, I, I uh, so just apropos on this, I remember talking to my wife and saying, you know, maybe I should have taken math courses. You know, this would have been a lot easier if I would have taken it formally. Yeah. And she said to me, you know, if you hadn't have taken the philosophy courses, you wouldn't have had the, you wouldn't have looked at the same problems in the same way. Yeah. And I think that's probably true, by the way. I, although, if you ask me for a linear model of why, how the philosophy course, maybe the philosophy of science course affected me somewhat, but mm. um, I don't think, you know, I, I can think of personal mistakes I made in relationships and things like that. Yeah. That I, you know, I would never do again. And I, um, I think I, I remember uh, one of my friends is Al Roth. I don't know if you know who he is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I so him. I remember Al and I sitting down and saying, you know, uh, I just never expected to be this successful. Mm. He he had exactly the same response. Uh-huh. So maybe if I would have had more self confidence, I would have done things slightly different. Yeah, Do you know. But I, it's because of my lack of self confidence, I was so careful and detailed about everything I did. Yeah. So I don't know how I would change it. You, you don't want to tell I, your young self anything. It sounds like it's one of these like Back no, to the Future I, things. You're gonna be mess nicer to pe- certain people. To be nicer to certain people, I would. Yeah, yeah. right, right. No, tell me about it. Um, so let me ask you this then: When you talk to these young PhD students, uh, and you sort of see, you know, you wish you could tell them things. I mean, is there generic advice that you sort of like to give to young people, or is it is there something that you think is like? the returns to experience that you sort of wish you could just distribute more broadly to young people? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, so different students, I've had a lot of students, um, different students sort of are going to do different kinds of things. So, you know, I've had students, you know, I could use names, but who are really good at what they do in a particular field. Uh, I've had students who, uh, are just very methodologically thoughtful. You know, I've had students who are technically really superior. And each one has, you know, you sort of treat them differently because they're interested in different things and they're good at different things. Um, I think the one thing that I tell students, especially here at Harvard, is uh, you have to do something that you believe is right and do it to the best of your ability yeah uh, yeah you, you you know so there's a around here anyway people tend to write three or four papers and i tell every student who comes in you know on the market people aren't going to look at one paper they don't have time there's 50 guys on the market they're not going to read 50 papers they're certainly not going to read three of your papers right okay. they're not going to read 150 papers <laughs> yeah they're not going to even read 20 papers i promise right. uh and uh and your job, you know, is to do something really well that people will pay attention to. Right, right. So I, I think that's my major message. And it can be, you know, it can be very empirical. It can be very methodological. What, what, as long as you do it right. So, you know, the, at least my good students, they have to be able to explain everything they did to that they're doing to me. I have mm. to understand A, B, how they got from A to B to C to D, you mm. know. And... um I don't know. It's been useful. And that's, by the way, the way I learn about things, mm. mostly through my students. Through your students. Yeah. Through your students. Part of the production function that is that they're teaching you stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. A lot. Yeah. yeah. It's very cool. That's, it's also, by the way, let me just say, 
many of my good friends are ex-students now. So they're a big part of my social life, never mind my intellectual life. That's so, awesome. That's great. Well, it's top of the hour. I really, really have enjoyed uh, this conversation and apologize for some of the technical difficulties, but I really appreciate you giving me some of your afternoon to talk about your life and your career. Okay. Thanks very much. It was okay. fun. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gotta see us through.